Welcome to Baby Boomer's Guide to Life in the 21st Century with me, Lex Marinos, and... Patricia Amphlett, you might know me as Little Patty. G'day, oh, Big Lex. yeah, 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 Little Patty, I remember. Now, Patty, or Little, if you don't mind me calling you... Yes, Big. We've had so many wonderful guests on the program this season, and I thought that we'd put together a kind of montage of many of the people who have shared with us their trip down Nostalgia Town. And how fortunate are we? When I look at the list, I I just think, wow, we've died and gone to heaven to be able to meet with such people. Absolutely. It's been fantastic. One of the things that came up in our conversations were the notion of culture and how Australia changed. And we've got a few people who comment on that. Do you know one of my heroes is Susan Ryan? And she's, well, she's an eastern suburbs girl. And I know that she spent a bit of time at Maroubra. Well, I think the feeling is mutual. You're one of her favourites, apparently. <laughs> no, that's nice. I was a beach girl, and I can remember being down on Maroubra Beach when I was about 15, and Johnny O'Keefe turned up in a gold lame suit and, and sang this song, Shout. And it really was. The whole beach just gravitated around him, and we were all jumping up and down and shouting. I'd never done anything as a good you know, convent girl. I'd never got on like that in my life. But it was fantastic. And that sort of exciting music was great. And it was there on our own beach. We didn't have to go to America. I mean, it was there. And again, with little Patty, when she came along with stomping at Maroubra and so on, she was a local girl. Imagine hearing a rock song with your own suburb's name in it. Like That was hugely exciting and we just loved it. And our most famous playwright, David Williamson, talking about the cultural cringe. Mm. There are a lot of people that wanted to do theatre, but there were no outlets because our, our cultural apparatus was controlled mainly by Englishmen. And the academia was controlled by leversite English academics from the Midlands of England. So A.A. Phillips' observation that we had a cultural cringe was so accurate at that time. It was almost thought that Australians had no creative abilities whatsoever and we would always have to rely on foreign plays, foreign books, foreign everything because we were so dull that we couldn't possibly create. And that was actually said to me uh, by an Englishman in our theatre industry. He said, look, it's no use writing Australian plays, David, because nothing ever happens here. It's the dullest society on earth. Now, someone who I appreciate and I know you do too, Ken Doan. What a wonderful artist. I was very touched when I asked him about whether he felt that he suffered from a tall poppy syndrome and he was very candid in his answer. Mm. Mm. I'm aware of the fact that you were subject to the tall poppy syndrome, you know, once your art commercialised and became successful. I was so disappointed that there was so much reaction about trying to belittle it and trivialise it. And I personally found that very hurtful, and I can only imagine what that must have meant to the artist involved. I'm not that tough that I could say that it didn't hurt. Of course it does. It's like, you know, David Williamson still worried about what the critics say about his plays, and yet he's been, you know, one of our most successful playwrights ever. He also spoke about his art practice and his studio. In my studio, there'd be the two or three paintings that I'm currently working on halfway 
down is this, the ones that I've sort of put aside and I'll come back to and then up the back it's like, you know, it's the bloody painting hospital, you know. You hear a little, <laughs> hear a little groan somewhere, you'll hear a little sigh from something right up in the back corner. And occasionally you walk up there and fossick around and find where that noise came from and realize you know how to solve that painting and you can work on it maybe after 20 years or... You know, you decide a lot of old crap and you just paint over it and throw it away. It's always lovely to look back at your younger days and uh, <laughs> someone who might surprise you with what he got up to is Andrew Denton. Well, I knew he was a footy fan. I didn't realise quite how much. Ah, he's a tragic. The sad truth is when I could have been reading Dickens or Shakespeare, I was reading Rugby League Week. To give you an insight into what a tragic supporter I am, back in mm-hmm. the... Um, in the 90s, when Souths were not travelling well, I went to watch us play Canterbury, a team that was going well, and we won, which oh. was unusual. And so I came home to watch the replay on TV, and I was nervous watching the replay that we wouldn't win. <laughs> and another bit of a footy tragic is someone <laughs> you might not expect, and he looks like a halfback still, Tom Keneally. Tom, which position did you play in rugby league? Half back. Of and, course. Uh, I had near me a bloke called Terry Gale who ran in the Commonwealth Games and he was very powerful centre and I used to give him the ball. But occasionally when a girl was watching that I wanted to impress, I'd go for my own scamper and the other team would be by then so traumatised by Terry Gale that I I could get away with it. And John Hewson had a very special connection, or his dad did certainly, to Jubilee Over, where the mighty St George Rugby League team played. Mm, Let's hear what he has to say. Uh, When my dad died, actually, we put half his ashes, of course, in the ground at uh, Warrenora Cemetery, and the other half we spread on the uh, oval at Cogger, particularly along the halfway line and the try line. Every now and again, we call on the old band to do something about the demons about the problem. <laughs> oh, that's, that's a great story. Uh-uh, here we go. Kathy Let. Oh, incorrigible, incorrigible. Well, just like you, Lex. Because you know, Dad couldn't understand why their hoses were shrinking. And, of course, it was because the kids were cutting off the end of the hoses for their bowls, you know. <laughs> and so we explained this. And then it was, this was raised by Senator Baum in Parliament, Canberra. We, you know, and he got us, he actually got us sacked because he said we were, you know, leading the young people of the nation astray. We used to call him bong on bones. Did you know that beautiful Marsha Hines, very talented Marsha Hines, might not have been a singer I'll let her tell you what she really wanted to do. Marsha, was it always going to be singing for you? Was that always going to be your career? Was there anything else you were interested in that you thought about? I hate to frighten everybody, but at one point I was going to be a mortician. Really? (laughs) Yeah, because that's very popular in America. You know know what I'm saying, Patty? The open casket thing, you know? Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a a cosmetic mortician where, you know, you you ate them up. Because I remember being a kid standing over coffins and you'd hear the the older ladies go, oh, doesn't she look fabulous? You know, (laughs) she didn't look that good when she was alive. (laughs) Well, I don't believe that, but I do believe Meredith Bergman when she had a blinding revelation one day. (gasps) She sure did. I remember 
waking up one morning and deciding I was a socialist and going into university and the first person I saw was Jeffrey Robertson, you know, the, <laughs> now the human rights lawyer. I said to him, Jeff, Jeff, I think I'm a socialist. And he said, oh, don't be silly, Meredith, everyone's a socialist. <laughs> so, you know, he'd got there sometime <laughs> before me. One of the delights we've had is Sir Peter Cosgrove. I wonder where he was born. Well, he said he can't remember, but I think that couldn't be right. What did he say? Well, I was born in one of the uh, maternity hospitals in the eastern suburbs. It was either Crown Street or St Margaret's. I I, I can't remember because I was pretty young then. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know that Red Simons played all of his own music beautifully, Mm. but when he was young, he even... I'll let him tell you who he played with. I, like many people in Australia, immigrated with my parents. I was nine years old. My claim to fame in the musical world is that I played with the Bee Gees. Really? Hmm. Pause for inappropriate Hmm. response, yes. They were on the same boat as me coming from England. Ah, wow. (laughs) (laughs) And Patricia, needless to say that when we do look back and go to Nostalgia Town, there's a lot about how social conditions have changed in Australia. In some areas, not as much as they need to. But uh, once again, our guests were very generous with their recollections. Our serious subjects were always so worthwhile. Andrew Denton, we love him to pieces and uh, his voluntary assisted dying was such a a wonderful topic, an interesting topic and a divisive topic. What isn't in the mix or certainly isn't in New South Wales but is in in other parts of Australia now is the choice of if palliative care doesn't work for you uh, and there are people for whom it doesn't, if it's not what you want to do, uh, if you've just reached the point where you no longer be wired up want to be wired up to the machines that go bing and have someone else saying what's good for you, then um, you can take another path, which is to take control of yourself and determine uh, how things end for you and at what time. Beverly Baker from the Older Women's Network in New South Wales, she spoke about women's security. Mm. We know that now women over the age of 45 are the fastest growing uh, cohort uh, facing unemployment. And we also know that domestic violence and one woman a week is murdered by a partner or someone that she knows. And we do know now the massive abuse that's going on in aged care. So it's security across the board in every aspect and every walk of their lives. Oh, and Patricia, religion always a very, very, very sensitive topic. Remember when we spoke to Professor Carol Cusack Mm. about her religion? I had to get my dictionary out to understand it. Where, where do you sit with that, Carol? Do you, you know, given your, your, the context of, of your religious studies, how do you view that, I, that I'm, trend? I'm a militant, proselytising atheist. Heather Ewart took us on a, a journey uh, back to the bush, but not just back to the bush, but what the bush actually means. Go, Heather. Oh, I love, I love doing back roads. So I've really come full circle. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I've gone back to the bush. I've gone back to how I grew up. And I think that's why it comes easily for me because I think as anyone who's grown up in the country knows, it doesn't matter what part of the country that that you live in or lived in, there are certain things that just don't change. You know, there's, there's footy on a Saturday, netball, 
um, the local pub is, is a place where for everyone to get together, you know, in, in good and bad times, you know, becomes headquarters in bushfires. Um, the bowling clubs are always there. The, the old halls, you know, when I was a kid where they had the 50-50 dances I used to go to. And, and I think that the sense of community and people looking after each other, I think, you know, that hasn't gone. Some things have changed and, and will never go back to, to what they were, but I think those aspects of the country are still there. And and when I sort of tap into that on back roads, I think it's a lovely reminder to people that in those days are still around. You might think that the world has changed completely, but some things haven't, thankfully. Of course, Jenny Key tells us more about the bush and some of the perils and dangers of living in the bush. Not just fashion, but bushfires. Well, they came right to the door with me. Mm. They came right, actually. They, they were sort of 10 metres from the house and up in the shed, which which was, is where a lot of things are stored, and it actually came right to the shed. And uh, the fireys, were, they don't say shed, they say the house. But thank God it was saved. It was a sort of horse ring shape right around my property. So it was pretty devastating. and. Walking out after was just so eerie, but I've been through quite a few bushfires up here. Yeah, I was in another one in another property that I owned, which uh, came almost to the door. But this one was probably the worst, and I saw it coming, and that was that was even more shocking. Do you know, I was struck, and I remember shedding a tear later when I thought about uh, the conversation we had with Linda Burney, I think from memory, Lex, you asked her what her wish would be. Yes, and I was quite moved and surprised by her answer. It was beautiful. Just think about it. Imagine if every Aboriginal baby born in this country was born at a good birth weight. Oh. (laughs) That would mean nutrition, living conditions, All of those things would mean a baby born at a good birth weight. And we all know that babies that are born at a healthy birth weight have a healthy life. Of course, one of the big social problems we have in Australia, uh, and it seems it's been around for ages, and I didn't realise just how big a problem it is until Tim Costello explained it. It's a bit scary. Why do we have the greatest gambling losses per head in the world? 40% higher than the nation that comes second, which is Singapore, and then it's the Irish. 40% higher. Why? Because we have the most utterly irresponsible gambling policies in the world. We have allowed Australia to have 20% of all the world's pokies. And most of those pokies are in pubs and clubs. So if you look at pokies around the world, most are in casinos. Ours are in pubs and clubs. 75% of all the world's pokies in pubs and clubs are in Australia. And what that really means is they are so accessible. You are going down to buy your milk and bread. You weren't planning to gamble. And suddenly you find yourself drawn into a pub or club because they are so accessible. So of the $24 billion lost uh, in gambling each year in Australia, that record amount, uh, world number one, uh, $15 billion comes from pokies. Now, racing, uh, online betting, sports betting are all 
quite serious too. But really, uh, the irresponsible spread of the pokies, not culture, not that Australians just were baptised in eucalyptus oil and gambling at birth. <laughs> that, that, that's the reason we have uh, this blind spot, Lex. Who'd have thought one of Shane Gould's little desires that she loves to do with her mates is, I'll let her tell you. We go and have dinners together, breakfast, sometimes Friday morning breakfast. We we do, and and because a lot of us live in that country town, well, we live in the country town of know it's only a 1,000 people, but we'll dress up and say, okay, well, we're getting to the end of our lives. haven't got many places to go with all our bling, so (laughs) today... Today, when we go to breakfast, wear, wear a necklace or wear a, wear a brooch or wear a hat. <laughs> and so we dig into our old stuff and find a funny hat or a brooch or something that then we could tell a story about, about what that meant to us. And, of course, all of, our, uh, all of our Nostalgia Town guests talked about their relationships with family and their own growing up. And uh, Cheryl Kerno had a really interesting take on what her grandson is about. Oh, isn't that good? I now have a grandson. He was in first class last year and his teacher took my daughter aside when she felt that she could confide in her. She said that in May before the election, my grandson, my grandson, aged seven or just turned seven, said to his teacher, Miss King, Miss King, whatever you do, don't vote for Clive Palmer. All those ads... (laughs) All those ads on television are fake news. They're all lies. Well, he's extremely <laughs> astute and I look forward to his career. Oh, she said she has never had an infant school child ever raise voting with her before. Good on So you. I'm a bit worried. I'm a bit worried. Oh, I'm no. a bit worried about his genetic inheritance. And David Williamson's family... Well, there's not just David, you know. He'll tell you all about them. There's a couple of sons who've gone into the family business. Mm. Actor son Felix is up here being directed by his younger brother Rory, another actor son, doing one of my plays for the local <laughs> theatre, just as just for a bit of fun because Rory is relocated up here and he's now very successfully selling real estate. Uh, but, <laughs> but he do- didn't want to lose his total contact with theatre so this afternoon the three Williamsons have to go and get photographed in front of the theatre. Jen Kitson has a wonderful memory of her father. He used to play Buddy Holly every Sunday morning. He'd make us all breakfast in bed, he'd put toast and a cup of tea and he'd put jam on the toast and then put it under the griller with Buddy Holly playing full blast (laughs) and then He'd bring the toast into us and the jam had turned into, like, molten lava. <laughs> Stick to the roof of our mouths. We'd go, oh, great, better than that bite. Ah! <laughs> like toffee, hot, molten toffee sticking to the roof of our mouths. Anyway, whenever I think of Buddy Holly, I think of that. Catherine Griner's got some funny things that happened to her. Then I went to the public school where, of course, nobody wears a uniform. I had the bobby socks and the saddle shoes. Remember, they were sort of a a black band in the middle of the white shoe. But then I came to a girls' school in Sydney. In the middle of summer, you begin the school year, the last week of January, the beginning of February, and we were in 90 denier stockings, brown lace-up shoes, 
a woolen tunic. <sighs> From memory, we did have the short sleeve, uh, round neck Peter Pan collar shirt. And that was the sop, if you like, to the fact that it was summer. In the winter time, it was a long sleeved blouse and a tie. Yeah, of course. And, and, did, uh, a, and a hat and a blazer. And, and I remember sending the photograph to my American friends saying, <laughs> you cannot believe what I am wearing to school. It was a cultural shock par excellence. And the incorrigible Kathy Lett. She gives us another insight into her growing up. Sometimes I think with Kathy, there's just too much information. The boys we grew up with disproved the theory of evolution. They were sort of evolving into apes, if you know what I mean. <laughs> um, they, was, they were so Neanderthal. For example, they thought sex drive meant doing it in the car. Just on a very serious side, but a beautiful side, Linda Burney meeting up with someone she didn't think, well, she didn't think this meeting would ever take place. I met him about a week before I turned 28. And it was just amazing. I'd been searching for him for about five years. I'd been writing letters and coming to lots of dead ends and being told I'd made a good life for myself and why would I want to revisit that? And it's, you know, it's all in the past. And of course, this showed just such a lack of understanding of what Aboriginality is all about. Anyway, long story short, um, I was eight months pregnant and I met my cousin and his wife came around and said, come on, put your shoes on, I've got someone I want you to meet. And once mm. again, I remember exactly what I was wearing. I had a blue maternity dress on, white shoes. I grabbed a photograph of my mother before she had me. I don't know where we drove to, but it was in Sydney. It was quite late afternoon, and this man came out of a building, just the most handsome, beautiful-looking man with a cowboy hat on. And he got into the car and um, was a classic. I can't say this without getting emotional, so forgive me. But I said, I, I, hello, I think you're my father. Uh-huh. And uh, I said, this is my mother, and I told him her name when she was in her early 20s. And he looked at the photograph and he said, I don't know her. And my heart just fell. And then he looked at the photograph again, which what felt like ages, was probably about 40, 50 seconds. And he just put his arms around me and said, I hope I don't disappoint you. And Chris Hall spoke to us about two really, really important subjects, love and grief. It's all about love, but then it comes to an end, doesn't it? But you don't actually stop loving. You just have to learn to grieve, and Chris takes us through that. People often think that this work is incredibly, you know, sad. This is work where we listen to love stories. And so really, if you want to become an expert in grief, then, you know, I'd encourage you to become an expert in love. They're really the opposite sides of the, of the same coin. Well, there you have it, Patricia. That's the, that's the year in review, if you like. But um, can I just say, that's not all of the people. That's just a, a, a selection of some of the people that Gosh, spoke to us. They were all just great guests. We were so blessed to have the opportunity to speak to such interesting and intelligent and sensitive and moving, Mm. poignant stories. Mm. As I always say, we learn so much from these 
fabulous people. You know, with all the ones we missed out, we didn't mean to, we just ran out of time. Maybe we could do another one another day.